Chapter Five, Part Two of the Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator, Chapter Five: The Man Who Squealed, Part Two. P. Walton watched the butcher disappear in the darkness. Then he began to retrace his steps toward the Polack quarters. His one thought now was to reach his bunk. He was sick, good and sick and those premonitory symptoms, if they had been arrested, were still with him. The day had been too much for him, the jostling on the platform, mostly when he had fought his way through the rear of the crowd for fear of unguarded recognition on the part of the butcher, then the walking he had done, and, lastly, that run from the sheriff's shed. P. Walton, with swimming head and choking lungs, reeled a little as he went along. It was farther, quite a lot farther, to go by the fields, and he was far enough down from Carruthers now, so that it would not make any difference anyhow, even if the butcher's escape had been discovered, which it hadn't. The town was too quiet for that. P. Walton headed into a cross street, staggered along it, reached the corner of Main Street, and, fainting, went suddenly down in a heap, as the hemorrhage caught him and the bright crimson ruby stained his lips. Coming up the street from a conference in the super's office, Nulty, the express messenger, big, brawny, hard-faced, thin-lipped, swung along, dragging fiercely at his pipe, scowling grimly as he reviewed the day's happenings. He passed a little knot of Polacks, quite obviously far gone in liquor, and almost fell over P. Walton's body. Oh, said Nulty, what the deuce is this? He bent down for a look into the unconscious man's face. "'The super's clerk!' he exclaimed, and stared around for help. There was no one in sight, save the approaching Polacks, but one of these hurriedly, if unsteadily, lurched forward. "'Mr. Walton,' announced Ivan Peloff genially. "'Him be sick, yes?' "'Where's he live?' demanded Nulty, without waste of words. "'Him by me live,' said Ivan Peloff, tapping his chest proudly as he swayed upon his feet. He called to his companions and reached for P. Walton's legs. "'The, uh, take him by us home.' "'Leave him alone,' said Nulty gruffly, as the interior of a Polack shanty pictured itself before his eyes. "'Him by me live,' repeated Ivan Peloff, still reaching doggedly, if uncertainly, for P. Walton's legs. "'Let him alone, I tell you, you drunken guinea!' roared Nulty suddenly, and his arm went out with a sweep that brushed Ivan Peloff back to an ultimate seat in the road three yards away. Without so much as a glance in the direction taken by the other, Nulty stepped up to the rest of the Polacks, stared into their faces, and selecting the one that appeared less drunk than the others, unceremoniously jerked the man by the collar into the foreground. "'You know me,' he snapped. "'I'm Nulty. Nulty! Say it!' "'Nulty,' said the bewildered foreigner. "'Yes,' said Nulty. "'Now you run for the doctor. "'And you run like hell. "'If he ain't at home, find him. "'Tell him to come to Nulty. "'Quick. "'Understand?' "'The Polak nodded his head excitedly. "'Doctor! "'Nulty!' "'He ejaculated brightly. "'Yes,' said Nulty. "'Go on now. "'Run!' "'And he gave the Polak an initial start "'with a vigorous push "'that nearly toppled the man forward on his nose.' Nulty stooped down, picked up P. Walton in his arms as though the latter were a baby, and started toward his own home, a block away. "'My God,' he muttered, "'a railroad man down there in a state like this. 
He'd have a long chance, he would. <laughs> Poor devil. Guess he won't last out many more of these. Blast it all! Now if the wife was home, she'd know what to do. Blamed if I know. For all that, however, Nolte did pretty well. He put P. Walton to bed and started feeding him cracked ice even before the doctor came. After that, Nolte went on feeding cracked ice. Along toward midnight, Gleason, the yardmaster, burst hurriedly into the house. "'Say, Nolte, you there?' he bawled. "'That blasted train robber's got away, and oh!' He had stepped from the hall over the threshold of the bedroom door, only to halt abruptly as his eyes fell upon the bed. "'Anything I can do, Nolte?' he asked in a booming whisper that he tried to make soft. Nolte, sitting in a chair by the bed, shook his head, and Gleason tiptoed in squeaky boots out of the house. P. Walton, who had been lying with closed eyes, opened them and looked at Nolte. "'What did he say?' he inquired. "'Says the fellow we got today has got away,' said Nolte shortly. "'Shut up. The doctor says you are not to talk.' P. Walton's bright eyes made a circuit of the room, came back, and rested again on Nolte. "'Would you know him again if you saw him?' he demanded. "'Would I know him?' exclaimed Nolte. "'It's not likely I wouldn't, is it? I was deadheading him down from Gopher Butte, wasn't I?' "'I think,' said P. Walton, slowly, "'if it were me, I'd be scared stiff that he got away. Afraid he'd be trying to revenge that other fellow, you know. And, uh, you want to look out for him.' "'I'll ask nothing better than to meet him again.' said Nolte grimly. Now shut up. You're not to talk. P. Walton was pretty sick. Nolte sat up all that night with him, laid off from his run the next day, and sat up with P. Walton again the next night. Then, having sent for Mrs. Nolte, who was visiting relatives down the line, Mrs. Nolte took a hand in the nursing. Mrs. Nolte was a little, sweet-faced woman with gray Irish eyes and no style about her. Nolte's paycheck didn't reach that far. But she knew how to nurse, and if her hands were red and the knuckles a little swollen from the wash-tub, she could use them with a touch that was full enough of tender sympathy to discount anything a manicure might have reason to find fault with on professional grounds. She didn't rate Nolte for turning her home into a hospital and crowding her train sheet of work, already pretty full, past all endurance. Mrs. Nolte, God bless her, wasn't that kind of a woman. She looked at her husband with a sort of happy pride in her eyes, looked at P. Walton and said, Poor man, as her eyes filled, and went to work. But for all of that, it was touch and go with P. Walton. P. Walton was a pretty sick man. It's queer the way trouble of that sort starts. Down and out one day with every signal in every block set dead against you, and the next day a clear track with rights through buttoned in your reefer, a wide-flung throttle and the sweep of the wind through the cab glass whipping your face till you could yell with the mad joy of living. It's queer. Five days saw P. Walton back at the office, as good, apparently, as ever he was, but Mrs. Nolte didn't stop nursing. Nolte came down sick in place of P. Walton and took to bed. To give her a chance to keep her hand in, Nolte said. 
Nulty came down, not from overdoing it on P. Walton's account, a few nights sitting up wasn't enough to lay a man like Nulty low. Nulty came down with a touch of just plain mountain fever. It wasn't anything serious or anything like that, but it put a stop order, temporarily at least, on the arrangements Nulty had cussed P. Walton into agreeing to. P. Walton was to come and board with the Nultys at the same figure he was paying Ivan Payloff until he got a raise and could pay more. And so, while Nulty was running hot and cold with mountain fever, P. Walton, with Mrs. Nulty in mind, kept his reservations on down in the Polak quarters until such time as Nulty should get better, and went back to work at the office. On the first night of his convalescence, P. Walton had a visitor, in the person of Larry, the brains and leader of the gang. Larry did not come inside the shack. He waited outside in the dark until P. Walton went out to him. "'Hello, Duke,' said Larry. "'Tough luck, huh? Been sick. Gee, I'm glad to see you. All to the mustard again?' Couldn't get into town before, but a fellow uptown said you'd been bad. Hello, Larry, returned P. Walton, and he shook the other's hand cordially. Glad to see you, too. Yes, I guess I'm all right. Till next time. Sure you are, said Larry heartily. Anything good doing? Well, said P. Walton, I don't know whether you'd call it good or not but there was a new order went into effect yesterday to remain in force until further notice owing to the heavy passenger traffic they are taking the mail and express cars off the regular afternoon eastbound trains and running them as a through extra on fast time they figure to land the mails east quicker and ease up on the equipment of the regular train so as to keep them a little nearer schedule so now the express stuff comes along on extra number thirty four do spider cut at 8.17 p.m., which is her last stop before Big Cloud. Say, said Larry, dubiously, ain't gonna be possible to board a train like that casual-like, is it? Then brightening suddenly, but say, when you get to thinking about it, it don't size up so bad, neither. I got the lay, Duke. I got it for fair. Listen, Instead of a trainload of passengers to handle, there won't be no one after the ditching but what's left of the train crew and the mail clerks. A couple of us can stand the stamp liquors up easy, while the two others pinches the swag. Oh, we'll stop her, all right. We'll ditch the train, see? There's a picture of a place for it about seven miles up the line from here. We tap the wires, Big Tom some cheese at that, and then cuts them as soon as we know the train has passed by her cut and is wafting its way toward us. <laughs> Say, it's good, Duke. It's like a Christmas present. I was near forgetting the registered mail. P. Walton laughed and coughed. I guess it's all right, Larry, he said. According to a letter I saw in the office this afternoon, there's a big shipment of banknotes that some bank is remitting, and that will be on board night after next. Say that again, said Larry, sucking in his breath quickly. I ain't deaf, but I'd like to hear it just once more. I was thinking, said P. Walton, more to himself than to his companion, that I'd like to get down to northern Australia, up Queensland way. I say it's good for what ails me. Bakes it out of one. Duke, said Larry, shoving out his hand, you can buy your ticket the day after the night after next. You'll get yours, and don't you forget it. I'll see to that. 
We'll move camp tomorrow down handy to the place I told you about and get things ready. And say, Duke, is that cuss Nolte on the new run? I don't know anything about Nolte, said P. Walton. Well, I hope he is, said Larry with a fervent oath. We're going to cut the heart out of him for what he did to Spud. The butcher was for coming into town and putting a bullet through him anyway. But I'm not for throwing the game. It won't hurt Spud's memory any to wait a bit. And we won't lose any enthusiasm by the delay. You can bet your life on that. And now I guess I'll mosey along. The less I'm seen around here, the better. Well, so long, Duke. I got it straight, huh? Night after tomorrow, train passes Spider Cut 817. That right? 817, night after tomorrow, yes, said P. Walton. Good luck to you, Larry. Same to you, Duke said Larry, and slipped away in the shadows. P. Walton went uptown to sit for an hour or two with Nolte, turnabout being no more than fair play. Also, on the following night, he did the same, and on this latter occasion he took the opportunity, when Mrs. Nolte wasn't around to hear and worry about it, to turn the conversation on the hold-up, after leading up to it casually, when you get out and back on your run again, Nulty, I'd keep a sharp lookout for that fellow whose pal you shot, he said. You can trust me for that, said Nulty anxiously. I'll bet he wouldn't get away a second time. Unless he saw you first, amended P. Walton evenly. There's probably more where those two came from. A gang of them, I dare say. They'll have it in for you, Nulty. Don't you worry none about me, said Nulty, and his jaw shot out. I'm able to take care of myself. Oh, well, said P. Walton. I'm just warning you, that's all. Anyway, there isn't any immediate need for worry. I guess you're safe enough, so long as you stay in bed. The next day P. Walton worked assiduously at the office. If excitement or nervousness in regard to the events of the night that was to come was in any wise his portion, he did not show it. There was not a quiver in the steel-plate hand in which he wrote the super's letters, not even an inadvertent blur on the tissue pages of the book in which he copied them. Only, perhaps, he worked a little more slowly. His work wasn't done when the shop whistle blew, and he came back to the office after supper. It was close on ten minutes after eight when he finally finished, and went into the dispatcher's room with a sheaf of official telegrams to go east during the night at odd moments when the wires were light. "'Here's the super's stuff,' he said, laying the papers on the dispatcher's desk. "'All right,' said Spence, who was sitting in on the early trick. "'How's P. Walton tonight?' "'Pretty fair,' said P. Walton, with a smile. "'How's everything moving?' "'Slick as clockwork,' Spence answered. "'Everything on the dot. I'll get some of that stuff off for you now.' "'Good,' said P. Walton, moving toward the door. "'Good night, Spence.' "'Night, old man,' rejoined Spence, and, picking up the first of the super's telegrams, began to rattle a call on his key like the tattoo of a snare drum. P. Walton, in possession of the information he sought, that extra thirty-four was on time, descended the stairs to the platform and started uptown. "'I think,' he mused as he went along, "'that about as good a place as any for me when this thing breaks will be sitting with Nolte.' P. Walton noticed the light burning in Nolte's bedroom window as he reached the house, and, it being a warm night, found the front door wide open. He stepped into the hall, 
and from there into the bedroom. Mrs. Nulty was sitting in a rocking chair beside the lamp, mending away busily at a pair of Nulty's overalls, but there wasn't anybody else in the room. "'Hello,' said P. Walton cheerily. "'Where's the sick man?' "'Why, didn't you know?' asked Mrs. Nulty a little anxiously, as she laid aside her work and rose from her chair. "'The express company sent word this morning that if he was able they particularly wanted to have him make the run through the mountains tonight on extra number thirty-four. I think it was some special shipment of money. He wasn't at all fit to go, and I tried to keep him home, but he wouldn't listen to me.' he went up to elk river this morning to meet thirty-four and to come back on it i've been worrying about him all day p walton's eyes rested on the anxious face of the little woman before him dropped to the red hard-working hands that played nervously with the corner of her apron then travelled to nulty's alarm clock that ticked raucously upon the table it was eight seventeen walton smiled now don't you worry mrs nulty he said reassuringly. A touch of mountain fever isn't anything one way or the other. Don't you worry. It'll be all right. I didn't know he was out, and I was going to sit with him for a little while. But what I really came for was to get him to lend me a revolver. There's a coyote haunting my end of the town that's kept me awake for the last two nights, and I'd like to even up the score. If Nulty hasn't taken the whole of his armament with him, perhaps you'll let me have one. Why, yes, of course said Mrs. Nulty readily. Uh, well, there, there's two in the top of the bureau drawer. Take whichever one you want. Thanks, said P. Walton, and stepped to the bureau. He took out a revolver, slipped it into his pocket, and turned toward the door. Now don't you worry, Mrs. Nulty, he said encouragingly, because there's nothing to worry about. Tell him I dropped in, will you? And thank you again for the revolver. Good night, Mrs. Nulty. P. Walton's eyes strayed to the clock as he left the room. It was 8.19. On the sidewalk he broke into a run, dashed around the corner, and sped with instantly protesting lungs down Main Street, making for the railroad yards. And as he ran, P. Walton did a sum in mental arithmetic while his breath came in gasps. If you remember Flanagan, you will remember that the distance from Spider Cut to Big Cloud was 21.7 miles. P. Walton figured it roughly twenty-two. Number thirty-four, on time, had already left Spider Cut at 8.17, and the wires were cut. Her running time for the twenty-two miles was twenty-nine minutes. She made Big Cloud at 8.46. Counting Larry's estimate of seven miles to be accurate, number thirty-four had fifteen miles to go from Spider Cut before they piled her in the ditch, and it would take her a little over nineteen minutes to do it. With two minutes already elapsed, three now, and allowing, by shaving it close, another five before he started, P. Walton found that he was left with eleven minutes in which to cover seven miles. It took P. Walton four of his five-minute allowance to reach the station platform, and here, for just an instant, he paused while his eyes swept the twinkling switch-lights in the yards. Then he raced along the length of the platform, jumped from the upper end to the ground, and lurching a little, up the main line track to where foreshortened, unclassed little switching engine, the 229, was struggling heavily, and stealing a momentary rest after having sent a string of flats flying down a spur under the tender guidance of a brakeman or two. And as P. Walton ran, he reached into his pocket and drew out Nulty's revolver. 
There wasn't much light inside the cab. There was only the lamp over the gauges, but it was light enough to show P. Walton's glittering eyes, fever-bright, the deadly white of his face, the deadly smile on his lips, and the deadly weapon in his hand as he sprang through the gangway. "'Get out!' panted P. Walton coldly. Neither Dalheen, the fireman, nor Mulligan, fat as a porpoise on the right-hand side, stood upon the order of their going. Dalheen ducked and took a flying leap through the left-hand gangway, and Mulligan, with a sort of anxious gasp that seemed as though he wished to convey to P. Walton the fact that he was hurrying all he could, squeezed himself through the right-hand gangway and sat down on the ground. P. Walton pulled the throttle open with an unscientific jerk. With a kind of startled scream from the hissing steam, the sparks flying from madly racing drivers, as the wheel tires bit into the rails, the old 229, like a frightened thoroughbred at the vicious lash of a yokel driver, reared and plunged wildly forward. The sudden violent start from inertia pitched P. Walton off his feet, across the driver's seat, and smashed his head against the reversing lever that stood notched forward in the segment. He gained his feet again, and his head swimming a little from the blow, looked behind him. Yells were coming from half a dozen different directions. Forms, racing along with lanterns, bobbing up and down, were tearing madly for the upper end of the yard toward him. There was a blur of switch lights, red, white, purple, and green. Then, with a wicked lurch around a curve, darkness hid them, and the sweep of the wind, the roar of the pounding drivers, deadened all other sounds. P. Walton smiled a strange, curious, wistful smile, and sat down in Mulligan's seat. His qualifications for a brotherhood card had been exhausted when he had pulled the throttle. Engine driving was not in P. Walton's line. P. Walton smiled at the air latch, the water glass, the gauges and injectors, whose inner workings were mysteries to him, and clung to the window sill of the cab to keep his seat. He understood the throttle, in a measure, he had ridden up and down the yards in the switchers once or twice during the month that was past. That was all. Quicker came the bark of the exhaust, quicker the speed. P. Walton's eyes were fixed through the cab glass ahead, following the headlight's glare that silvered now the rails and now flung its beams athwart the stubble of a butte as the 229 swung a curve. Around him, about him, was dizzy, lurching chaos, as like some mad thing the little switcher reeled drunkenly through the night, now losing her wheelbase with a sickening slew on the circling track, now finding it again with a staggering quiver as she struck the tangent once more. It was not scientific running. P. Walton never eased her, never helped her. P. Walton was not an engineer. He only knew that he must go fast to make the seven miles in eleven minutes, and he was going fast. And mocking every formula of dynamics, the little switcher, with no single trailing coach to steady it, swinging, swaying, rocking, held the rails. P. Walton's lips were still half-parted in their strange, curious smile. A deafening roar was in his ears, the pound of beating trucks on the fish plates, the creak and groan of axle-play, the screech of crunching flanges, the whistling wind, the full-toned thunder now of the exhaust, and reverberating back and forth, flinging it from butte to butte, for miles around in the foothills the still night woke into a thousand answering echoes. Meanwhile, back in Big Cloud, things were happening in the super's office. 
Spence, the dispatcher, interrupting Carleton and Regan at their nightly Pedro, came hastily into the room. "'Something's wrong,' he said tersely. "'I can't get anything west of here, and—' He stopped suddenly as Mulligan, flabby white, came tumbling into the room. "'He's gone off his trump!' screamed Mulligan. "'Gone delirious or mad or—' "'What's the matter?' Carleton was on his feet, his words cold as ice. "'Here!' gasped the engineer. "'Look!' He dragged Carleton to the side window and pointed up the track. The 229, Sparks volleying skyward from her stack, was just disappearing around the first bend. That, "'That's the 229,' he panted. "'P. Walton's in her. Drove me and Dalheen out of the cab with a revolver.' For an instant, no more than a breathing space, no one spoke. Then Spence's voice, with a queer sag in it, broke the silence. "'Extra thirty-four left Spider Cut eight minutes ago.' Carleton, master always of himself and master always of the situation, spoke before the words were hardly out of the dispatcher's mouth. "'Order the wrecker out, Spence. Jump. Mulligan, go down and help get the crew together.' And then, as Spence and Mulligan hurried from the room, Carleton looked at the master mechanic. "'Well, Tommy, what do you make of this?' he demanded grimly. Regan, with thinned lips, was pulling viciously at his mustache. "'What do I make of it?' he growled a mail train in the ditch and nothing worth speaking of left of the two twenty nine that's what i make of it carleton shook his head doesn't it strike you as a rather remarkable coincidence that our wires should go out and p walton should go off his head with delirium at the same moment eh snapped regan sharply eh what do you mean mm, i don't mean anything carleton answered clipping off his words it's strange, that's all. I think we'll go up with a wrecker, Tommy. Yes, said Regan slowly, puzzled. Then with a scowl and a tug at his mustache, it does look queer, queerer every minute, blame queer. I wonder who P. Walton is and where he came from anyhow. You asked me that once before, Carleton threw back over his shoulder, moving toward the door. P. Walton never said... And while Regan, still tugging at his moustache, followed Carleton down the stairs to the platform, and ill-omened call-boys flew about the town for the wrecking crew, and the 1018, big and capable, snorting from a full head of steam, backed the tool-car, a flat, and the rumbling derrick from a spur to the main line, P. Walton still sat, smiling strangely, clinging to the window-sill of the laboring 229, staring out into the night through the cab-glass ahead. "'You see?' said P. Walton to himself, as though summing up an argument dispassionately. Ditching a train traveling pretty near a mile a minute is apt to result in a few casualties, and Nulty might get hurt. And if he didn't, the first thing they'd do would be to pass him out for keeps. Anyway, on Spud's account. They're not a very gentle lot. I remember the night back at Joliet that Larry and the butcher walked out with the guard's clothes on after cracking the guard's skulls. They're not a very gentle lot, and I guess they've been to some trouble fixing up for tonight. Enough, so's they won't feel pleasant at having it spoiled, I guess. P. Walton coughed. I won't need any ticket for the heat of northern Queensland, I guess, he ended gravely. I guess I'm going to hell. P. Walton put his head out through the window and listened, and nodded his head. "'Sound carries a long way out here in the foothills,' he observed. 
They ought to hear it on the mail train as soon as we get close. And I guess we're close enough now to start it. P. Walton got down, and, clutching at the cab frame for support, lifted up the cover of the engineer's seat. There was sure to be something there among the tools that would do. P. Walton's hand came out with a heavy piece of cord. He turned then, pulled the whistle lever down, tied it down, and, screaming now like a lost soul, the two-two-nine reeled on through the night. The minutes passed, and then the pace began to slacken. Dalheen was always rated a good fireman, and a wizard with the shovel. But even Dalheen had his limitations, and P. Walton hadn't helped him out any. The steam was dropping pretty fast as the 229 started to climb a grade. P. Walton stared anxiously about him. It must be eleven minutes now since he had started from the big cloud yards. But how far had he come? Was he going to stop too soon, after all? What was the matter? P. Walton's eyes on the track ahead dilated suddenly, and as suddenly he reached for the throttle and slammed it shut. He was not going to stop too soon, perhaps not soon enough. Larry, the butcher, Big Tom, and Dago Pete had chosen their position well. A hundred yards ahead the headlight played on a dismantled roadbed and torn up rails, then shot off into nothingness over the embankment as the right-of-way swerved sharply to the right. They had left no single loophole for extra thirty-four, not even a fighting chance. The mail train would swing the curve and be into the muck before the men in her cab would be able to touch a lever. Screaming hoarsely, the two-two-nine slowed, bumped her pony truck on the ties where there were no longer any rails, jarred, bounced, and thumped along another half-dozen yards, and brought up with a shock that sent P. Walton reeling back on the coal in the tender. A dark form, springing forward, bulked in the left-hand gangway, and P. Walton recognized the butcher. "'Keep out, butch!' he coughed over the scream of the whistle, and the butcher, in his surprise, sort of sagged mechanically back to the ground. "'It's the duke!' he yelled with a gasp, and then, as other forms joined him, he burst into a torrent of oaths. "'What the blazes are you doing?' he bawled. "'The train'll be along any minute, if you ain't queered it already. "'Cut out that cursed whistle! "'Cut it out, you hear, or we'll come in there and do it for you in a way you won't like. "'Have you gone nutty?' "'Try it,' invited P. Walton, and coughed again. "'You won't have far to come, but I'll drop you if you do. "'I've changed my mind. "'There isn't going to be any wreck tonight.' You'd better, you'd better use what time is left in making your getaway. So that's it, is it? roared another voice. You dirty pup! You'd squeal on your pals, would you, you white-livered snitch, you! Well, take that! There was a flash. A lane of light cut streaming through the darkness, and a bullet lodged with an angry spat on the coal behind P. Walton's head. Another and another followed. P. Walton smiled and flattened himself down on the coal. A form leaped for the gangway, and P. Walton fired. There was a yell of pain, and the man dropped back. Then P. Walton heard some of them running around behind the tender, and they came at him from both sides, firing at an angle through both gangways. Yells, oaths, revolver shots, and the screech of the whistle filled the air. And again P. Walton smiled. He was hit now, quite badly, somewhere in his side. His brain grew sick and giddy. He fired once, twice more unsteadily. Then the revolver slipped from his fingers. From somewhere came another whistle. They weren't firing at him any more. They were running away. And P. Walton tried to rise and pitched back unconscious. 
Nulty, the first man out from the mail train, found him there, and wondering, his face and set and grim, carried P. Walton to the express car. They made a mattress for him out of chair cushions and laid him on the floor. And there, a few minutes later, Regan and Carleton from the wrecker, after a look at the 229 in the wrecked track that spoke eloquently for itself, joined the group. Carleton knelt and looked at P. Walton, then looked into Nulty's face. Nulty, bending over P. Walton on the other side, shook his head. "'He's past all hope,' he said gruffly. P. Walton stirred, and his lips moved. He was talking to himself. "'If I were you, Nulty,' he murmured, and they stooped to catch the words, "'I'd look out for the... For, for the... the words trailed off into incoherency. Regan, tugging at his mustache, swallowed a lump in his throat and turned away his head. It's queer, he muttered. How do you know? What? I wonder where he came from and who he was. But P. Walton never said. P. Walton was dead. End of chapter 5